These are the Proverbs. <clears throat> These are the Proverbs of Solomon, David's son, king of Israel. Their purpose is to teach people wisdom and discipline, to help them understand the insights of the wise. Their purpose is to teach people to live disciplined and successful lives, to help them do what is right, just, and fair. These Proverbs will give insight to the simple, knowledge and discernment to the young. Let the wise listen to these prophets, Proverbs, <clears throat> and become even wiser. Let those with understanding receive guidance. By exploring the meaning in these Proverbs and parables, the words of the wise and their riddles, fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and discipline. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you for that reading, Chris. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly today. This morning we start a new resource for the kids, the Books of the Bible, which is a 32 or 36, Kelly, 32-week exploration throughout the whole Bible. Um, so to be good, if your kids are interested in that, um, or if you're interested in your kids knowing that. I don't know if my parents ever said, are you interested in, go in doing this? But uh, uh, if you're interested in them knowing that, um, that starts today, and it'd be a good thing to get them involved in. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, is what the proverb said for us, um, the Psalm said for us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the way we most know that phrase, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that shows up in the book of Proverbs too, both at the beginning and at the end. This Sunday, we start a new sermon series together. Um, if you remember back five years ago, uh, or six, um, we started a series going through the Torah. We had the summers of Torah. So we did Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, one book each summer, um, and that was great for me because I don't like deciding what to preach on, and it gave me five summers planned in one shot. And so my laziness abounds again, and I said, what can I do that will plan four summers? And that is the gift of wisdom literature. Here's sort of the structure of what the next four summers will be. We have wisdom, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, a Song of Songs. I thought the heart was cute. Um, yeah. <laughs> it gets better, David. It gets better from here. Um, and so this summer, we start our journey through wisdom with the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so one of the things that as we look at this, and I put this in the email this week, is that one of the ways that was helpful for me to begin to learn about what these three although a friend suggested there was another way to handle the fourth, um, the first three of these books sort of exemplify is sort of our pass into knowledge. Proverbs is written in this very stable place. This is where the world is interacting almost as it should be. Things make sense. If you remember when we preach on the Psalms here, we often preach about Psalms of orientation. These are Psalms where we gain our north in the world where we figure out how to move about, where we learn sort of the ways and knowledge of which we can go about. Proverbs lives in that space. This book is grounding for us. And there's this way in which, and you could say it's basic, which I guess is um, not a compliment today. 
uh, to call someone basic. I'm, I'm too young to throw that, that shade, too young to also, or too old to say throw that shade uh, as well. Um, so excuse me as I try to be hip to the kids. How are you doing today? Um, is, is that we, uh, they're the place where we learn to move on the ground. And the Hebrew word um, for, for wisdom, hokumah, has this notion of sort of craftsmanship and artful living. Like it's this place in which we sort of begin to find these things. And, and if you notice at the introduction of Proverbs that Chris read for us, it says, let the wise hear them. Like it's the place you always return back to, to sort of gain again this knowledge and instruction. But what we know from the psalmist, um, all the psalms, and from living life longer than um, five years, is that we don't always live in a perfectly ordered space. Things go awry and wrong. And so if you think of Proverbs as sort of this high school or, or bachelor's level education or kindergarten level education, whatever you want to pick, Ecclesiastes takes it one step up. Uh, Ecclesiastes begins to say, you know, what happens when we look at all that is out there? Is there actually meaning? Or is the evidence run contrary to that? Now, Ecclesiastes, I'm looking uh, forward to preaching to because there's a key at the end of the book. You listen to the teacher, if you're familiar with it, throughout the book, and then the father says to the son, and it's, it's interesting that most of wisdom literature is kind of captured in conversational, uh, both Proverbs and Ecclesiastes form. They're sort of passed on stories. These are things that are sort of um, shared by the community in some way. They emerged from life together. And the, the, the father says to the son about what he can learn from listening from the teacher, but the teacher doesn't have it all right. Job doesn't give us quite an easy way out. So if that's master's level education, Job is like getting your PhD. Now there's this, there's this classic thing when I considered getting my PhD, which was um, uh, I got my undergraduate, I know nothing. I got my master's, I know everything. I got my PhD, I know nothing. Um, uh, which in Job is this place where you go back to almost knowing nothing. One of the questions that sort of circulates around Job, if you're familiar with the book, is what does innocent suffering entail if you worship this God? Is there more hinging to faith than just the security that comes from these things? And when that happens, when suffering rears its head, and in Job this is massive suffering— and yet he's left there in his sores. What is the advice we hear from our friends? And then what is it that God teaches? Which is weird because uh, I should stop there. What is it God teaches us through our suffering? In the book of Job, the answer to that is nothing other than that God is God. Um, and we'll get to that in that summer too. Um, and, and so these are sort of the ways in which we'll move through that. Song of Songs, my friend who um, I went to seminary with emailed back as I, he saw that analogy. He says, Song of Songs is your creative writing program when you go get your master's in fine arts. Um, and I said, that's a good way to put it. Um, Song of Songs, there, there's a debate among, uh, more on the Christian side of reading the Old Testament, of whether it belongs in wisdom literature the problem is if you don't put it in wisdom literature, it just sort of falls into the category of erotic poetry, um, uh, which is hard to preach from. Um, uh, 
So we're going to put it in wisdom literature just so I have something to say. Um, but the tradition says that. Now, this one you'll, you'll hear from um, the Christian tradition did not write many commentaries on Song of Songs until the modern era. They kind of took a long time off. Origen wrote one, and everybody was like, well, that's enough. Um, Bernard of Clairvaux wrote one in the Middle Ages, and then that was enough for another 500 years, and now we're writing them again. Um, Calvin, who hated sort of uh, reading scripture as like, this is the love between the church and, or God and Israel and God and the church, finally gave up when he got to the Song of Songs and was like, it has to be allegorical, otherwise, why is it in here? Um, and so we'll get to Song of Songs, but Rabbi uh, Akiba, who we'll hear about when we get there more, has this great phrase that, that scripture is the temple and Song of Song is the holy of holies. Um, it's something I've turned over inside myself. What does that mean? I mean, there's, there's something, sometimes when I hear, read Rabbi saying, sayings, I go, oh, that sounds so nice. And then I never think about what does that mean. Um, but I think what he's trying to express there is there's something in this, this romantic relationship that's portrayed there that, that makes something more than just sort of like the, the on-the-ground wisdom of Proverbs or the, the questions about existence from Ecclesiastes or what do we do in the face of suffering, but that when we come to sort of the relationship of, of lovers and, and whether Song of Song is one lover or many lovers or what's going on there, it will get into. But, but when we come to the relationship and the mystery of love, perhaps that's deeper than the things that came before. And I think that one will be a challenge for us because we're in a society that, and this will show up in Proverbs too, that quests for knowledge in certain ways. Um, and the knowledge that comes through sort of relational knowledge trades low today. Um, how do you monetize that? Um, uh, Facebook is working on it, but it's not exactly relational. Um, so that's sort of where we'll be going the next four summers, um, sort of in this journey through wisdom. And as I joked, we used to, or I used to pray that Jesus would return before we made it to Leviticus. So too we can pray before the pastor has to talk about Song of Songs before the congregation. Come now, Lord Jesus. Amen. Um, but as we move into today, I want to talk a little bit about how we read Scripture to begin. This is sort of one of the classic modern ways of sort of breaking up the Scripture from, from uh, beginning to end in sort of acts. What are the acts of Scripture? And so the first act of Scripture is creation. Um, and this is, this is important. We, we talked about this when we worked through the book of Genesis. It's, it's important that we start with good creation, so much of what Christians want to tell people about Christianity and the mechanisms of salvation and how we get there is we start with sin. And if you think if you start with sin, all sorts of other things begin to go wrong from there. But if you start with the blessing that God created this as good and that we've then distorted it, it makes more holistic sense and more biblical sense. God creates it and calls it good. This is one of the major benefits of sort of this way of looking at Scripture. The second one is fall. The second act is fall. And this, I guess, would encompass uh, from Genesis 3, 4 to um, calling of Abraham, Genesis 12. I think that's right, yeah. Um, and so you would, you would sort of have this way of sort of reading fall into that. And then God begins his rescue project in Israel. When we went through Genesis, I'd like to call this the scandal of particularity. God tries this grand way of sort of, of remaking the cosmos and wiping it clean through Noah. Um, and then he tries this particular way through the calling of Abraham. And, and particularity for Christianity is, is 
peak importance because in Jesus we have the particular human one who is the God one. Um, and so this idea that God works through particularity rather than writing it in the sky um, so that we all see right away uh, is, is core to who we are. Um, this brings us to Jesus, um, and then, which would be, I just guess, the Gospels, and then church. Um, and then this is where this, if you haven't picked up, I'm, I'm not crazy about this way of reading Scripture yet, although I think there's some good in it, that it originally stopped here. So the person who came up with this was like, that's it. And they were like, you know, that's not where it ends. And he was like, oh, yeah, Acts 6. <laughs> That's why there's a line. New creation, the reconciliation of all things, that things would be made new again. And so this is one way of reading Scripture, but there, people often ask me, Matt, why don't you like this way of reading, reading Scripture? And by people, I mean like two people every five years. Um, uh, it's something that happens in life when you're a pastor, particularly talking to other pastors. What's, what's your rebellion against this? Um, and so I must have answered it enough that I have like a rote way of answering it. But the first is, is that, um, is Jesus just an act in the story? Like if you look at um, what First John says about Jesus as the wisdom, um, the word of the world that was there at creation, Jesus doesn't just show up on the scene. And not only that, like what does it mean to go from Jesus to church? You just sort of move forward from Jesus. If you, if you narrate scripture in this way, it sort of moves, moves in weird directions. The, the other thing, I think, obviously, that they forgot new creation or, or, or um, uh, reconciliation of all things uh, from the get-go suggests that this was maybe not meant for the way we read scripture. Fall is a weird one because what does it mean to make the, the grasping of nothing a whole generative act itself? Like, it, it should be almost a negation of the story. Like, it's, a, it's the, um, the dissonance. Uh, if you're familiar with the, really familiar in a nerd way with The Lord of the Rings, um, the, I think, I've never read it, but in the first book, or the first book that's supposed to be the first book, The Similarian, David, well, I maybe should take a time out for David to explain this. The, the, some angels are singing into to being the universe, and one angel who's sort of the... Um, fallen angel begins to make a different tone that is dissonance with it. I'm looking at him. He's still nodding. Uh, dissonance with it. And then so what the other angels and, and sort of the lead sort of character who's God do is find a way to absorb the dissonance in it to sort of make it beautiful again. But they don't stamp out the dissonance. Um, and so that, you know, maybe fall is the dissonance that needs to come and get reconciled again rather than its own creative act. But the biggest problem, I think, as we pr approach Proverbs today is that Proverbs doesn't fit into this. The Psalms don't fit into this. I mean, you could say it's wisdom for Israel, but then what's it mean for church and new creation? You could say it's, it's, it's if you're going to break it into a narrative thing, the narrative books work great, and the narrative story works wonderful. But when you move, and, and Proverbs is completely almost lacking in a narrative that particularly fits into Israel's um, archetypal narrative, ar ar uh, archetype narrative, which is the Torah, which we just finished, there's almost very little reference to it except for the divine name, I am. Other than that, um, it's void of that context. And so where do you place something like Proverbs or Psalms in this way? Which is why I would propose that perhaps a better way of reading scripture 
comes from this way of seeing how God relates to us, not how do we make the Bible fit into our patterns. And so God relates to us in creating us, God relates to us in redeeming us, and God relates to us in bringing us to our consummation, our fullness of time. And these things are not entirely separable, but intertwined. They're sort of a mixed thing. And so when we look um, with Proverbs, we're looking at creation, the ordered creation, and how God relates to us through ordered creation. Here we're letting how God relates to human beings shape the way we tell the story rather than sort of an outside form to the text. Now this, this outside Shape obviously comes from sort of a Trinitarian language. So the Father relates to us by the power of the Son through the work of the Holy Spirit through creation. The Son redeems us by the work of the, by the will of the Father through the Holy Spirit. So you don't actually explain any of them, by the way, as just Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, you, you, you describe all of them sort of in this three-part way, but the emphasis perhaps falls on Spirit and consummates, Son and redeems, and Father and creates. But this way of sort of reading scripture begins to open up different pathways for us. We begin to see different things on how God might relate to us as we read the story this way. And it places the emphasis on how we might learn from God in this way. Scripture then can ground us in who we know we are from God. And God can teach and instruct us. We can find ourselves as creatures again. And this is one of the the reasons why this is... um, particularly interesting, I think, is because God creates and sustains and good things continually to happen, even in an estranged context. Like in the other one, why do good things continue to happen in a fallen context? Like God is still blessing. God is still redeeming. God is still bringing us towards consummation. There is this ways in which we are sort of given these gifts in life. And so this, I think, will help us ground Proverbs. Um, I read a a huge, way too long book on, um, on how perhaps when we talk about creation, we should turn to wisdom literature rather than Genesis 1 through 2. And the reasoning for that is the book of Genesis belongs in reconciled history. Minus 1 and 2, the whole story is about how we begin to move towards reconciliation with God. Proverbs begins to talk about how God has created and blessed us in order. That wisdom literature sort of assumes that God is this creative one that sort of um, is always blessing us, always near to us, always instructing us. And when we look at um, uh, Genesis, it's weird that like it just moves straight to reconciled history right off the bat. And one of the reasons why I think this three-way of reading scripture, this would probably be the most important reason for it, for Protestants today is we generally read everything as redeemed history. All of it is redeemed. There is no like, um, what does it mean to be created by God? It's how do we get people to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ through redemption? There is no, what does it mean to be reconciled to all things? This is perhaps what was left off in that first five-act structure was because it's still, no, we want people to pray the prayer. We want people to know Jesus. We want people to come in this. And hear me clearly, there's nothing wrong with that, only there's something wrong with that if you lose everything else. 
Like, it's true that we should want that, but we can't cut off everything else. And so in classic theology or in most theology, they're always holding out what does creation mean and what does consummation mean alongside what does redeemed mean. But we often just say the whole story is redeemed. And this is why I think uniquely um, Protestants and Catholics and Christians maybe struggle with wisdom literature is because it's not something we grow into redeemed knowledge. Now, we can argue maybe we do grow into redeemed knowledge, but most often we take it to mean you move from one category to another category and you're set. Whereas wisdom is something we grow in. The wise are to return to the book of Proverbs. But the classic Protestant question, when were you saved, which again, hear me, is not a bad question, although I like um, Karl Barth's answer, which was around 33 AD, he said, which I think properly grounds us in where we are saved, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, a little too cute, maybe. It doesn't make you a lot of friends. Um, uh, or at least 